today. I am so excited to have Ben here. Ben has been leading sales teams and now product-led sales teams for a decade. And he has been both in the founder world, the startup world. Right now, he leads revenue at Paperspace, which was recently acquired by DigitalOcean. So congratulations on that. And he is really kind of one of the best thinkers I know on product-led sales, joining a company that was pure play, PLG, self-serve, and really accelerating revenue to a very impressive level by being at Paperspace for, for not even too long and saw such incredible success. So, so excited for you to be here, Ben. We're going to talk about your journey to product-led sales, your decision-making between sales and CF. We're going to talk about anti-PQLs. Talks about a lot of things, but first I just want to say welcome. And if there's anything I missed in your intro, feel free to no, tell us all. Uh, fantastic intro. Thank you. Um, very excited and honored to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Well, maybe we can start out. Tell us a little bit about your role at Paperspace and what you did in the journey to product-led sales. Yeah. Um, so I was really fortunate. I knew the founders of Paperspace from even before they went through YC when Paperspace was really just an idea. I had known them for years. My first startup that I founded got acquired. I was looking for a new challenge and they asked me to come on board and kind of rebuild the go-to-market side of their business. They were essentially 100% self-service. Revenue had gone flat for a couple of years and they were looking to, to break out of that. With the help of my mentor, AJ Bruno, who you know, and as well as the help of this community, it was, you know, a couple months at Paperspace and I, I had the realization that PLG and PLS was really the, the direction the organization needed to go in order to create some momentum and drive revenue with the organization. So we took about six months to kind of build out what that go-to-market motion looked like. And then the following 18 months or so was gangbusters where we saw some really impressive growth. So yeah, that's kind of the quick the quick of it, I haven't been in PLG and PLS for a long time, but I think I got to see a lot at Paperspace given the the number of users we see and the complexity of the product. So you got to Paperspace, revenue was kind of <clears throat> flatline, but not the insane yep. growth you see saw once you had product-led sales. What did you do in those six months to go from here to absolutely high slope? The first decision was we weren't going to build a sales team. We were going to build a customer success team. As I was becoming a student of PLG and PLS, everyone has their own mantra on what PLG and PLS is. But one of the consistencies I saw common threads was this idea of providing value before extracting value, reducing time to value and reducing friction and onboarding. So the idea was, okay, we're selling to developers. We're selling to engineers. We're going to build out a customer success team and not a sales team. And that customer success team is there to make the customer successful. So they weren't given the, the order to sell, sell, sell. It was help the customer understand the product, help them get in and start using it, answer questions, and then pop back in later to see how it's going. Our thesis was if people get in and start using the product, they will have a good experience. And then customer success really becomes, instead of a salesperson, they become an order taker where we say, hey, you could stay self-service, but if you sign a long-term contract, we will give you a discount, right? So those long-term contracts then in turn allowed us to lock folks in, bring some predictable revenue into the business and allow us to create longer standing relationships with folks where we could ultimately expand their utilization. So the first thing was build this customer success team. At the same time, we were mapping the user journey so we looked at what are every possible path that the user can take through the paper space platform. 
map that user journey, look for what we believe are going to be moments, and then make sure we have segment events for every one of those product utilization moments. And then those segment events get sent to the data warehouse where we can then pull them into, first it was variance, now it's focus. Um, we can pull that data into our PLG platform to then help the customer success team understand who they should be spending their time um, reaching out to, which users are most likely to convert and expand. And those are the ones we're going to invest our time into. So concurrently, we were building out this team that was really focused around provide value, help users be successful. And then we were also building out the tooling side of the business that said, hey, here's who you're going to go do that thing to. I've told you to provide value. I've told you to help people, help them be successful. Now let me give you the list of folks you should reach out to. There's about a million threads I want to go down deeper in what you just said. <laughs> so um, let's get really tactical. So you start out a paper space, you hire CSMs or CS folks, yep. um, and their goal is to actually figure out how can we drive value and how can I um, help users get value out of the product so that they can be, you said, order takers. What yep. does that mean? Like, who did you bring on for CS and like, what did their day-to-day -day yeah. look like? So uh, my first hire was someone that I brought from my previous role. So my first company was acquired at that acquiring company. I further built out the sales team and I brought in an SDR that I thought was fantastic. I brought him with me. He didn't have selling experience, but I knew he could sell, but also I knew he knew how to work with customers. So I brought him on board. And the thing about these first two CSM hires is I was looking for folks that were going to be workforces in that they needed to put a ton of work into understanding the technology, the customer, and the problem. And when dealing with machine learning engineers, ML ops, accessing infrastructure, you know, GPU infrastructure, it gets really low level really fast. So we're asking non-engineers to at least become conversational in these areas, right? So in order to do that, you need people who are going to work really hard outside of that nine to five. So that was the profile we looked for. And then from there, it was just get out there, talk to customers, answer questions about the platform, and then provide them with free credits to test it out. Um, if we do those things and they end up using those free credits, they'll have that aha moment. That was the thesis, right? Just get out there, make sure they understand how to use the product and then give them free credits to test it and then follow back up with them later with an offer to give them discounted pricing in exchange for contract. So you brought on an SDR and then trained them to do, it sounds like it was almost like a sales assisted product specialist motion yep. for the yep. customer success role. Exactly. The, the way I look at product led sales is in pure PLG self-service, the product itself, as we all know, like does the selling, right? The product is self-explanatory. You understand either through really good docs or through an intuitive user interface, you can go in there and understand how to use it get some value initially through a freemium or a free trial, reverse trial, and then pay to continue to use it. Product-led sales, the human acts like a backstop for any holes or flaws in the product where it's not completely self-explanatory. So mm -hmm. I still don't like this idea. Product-led sales, yes, that's what we need to call it, but we didn't create salespeople. The goal was to create order takers. The product would still do the selling. The human, the CSM, was just a backstop for when the product wasn't completely self-explanatory because we're, we are dealing with the low level product, right? It is a developer tool that gets really low level, really fast. And unless someone wanted to spend a lot of time going through all of our docs, 
they were going to have some questions about how to do certain things. And that's what the CSM was there to do. Slash triage with engineering, triage with support to get even lower level answers that they weren't aware of because they weren't an engineer or to get things solved quickly. So how did you, did you ever hire a traditional seller versus the kind of like, you have? So tell me a little bit about like, yeah, so we tried that at Paperspace. I consulted for Paperspace six years ago. Didn't work then. And then we actually tried that while we were building up the tooling, while we were building out the PLG motion, we did actually try some traditional direct sales. Um, and it just, it, it failed miserably. And it had failed miserably with my predecessors who had come from a background of sales led top down enterprise. It's, it's not how developers, especially engineers and developers at early stage series seed A, B, and C startups, how they tend to buy. What do you think changed from when you first tried to do this six months before joining towards that to after when you got it right? So the question is what changed when I consulted with them or when we first started? Yeah. When you consulted. What were the uh, that's all I knew. This was seven years ago. My life at <laughs> oh, that okay. time was like, all I knew was direct sales. I'd come from like a, you know, my first ever job was a behemoth, you know, software company that all they did was like hardcore traditional direct sales. PLG wasn't a thing. You know, I didn't know about it. It wasn't being talked about. That's all I knew at that time. And then I think it was just serendipitous that in joining Paperspace, it was starting to be talked about. I also, again, had AJ Bruno, who many people in the community uh, know, founder of Quotapath. He, you know, uh, has a background in PLG and he's the one that's like, hey, I think there's an opportunity here for you. Here's what I think you need to look at. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And then I became obsessed with listening to every AMA I could you know, sit in on, listening to every podcast, reading every article, and just became a student of PLG and PLS. You're getting a lot of questions that uh, in the chat. You're very popular. Ali, do you want to unmute and ask your question? Sure. So you um, described kind of your um, SDRs acting as like backstops for holes or flaws in the product. And I was just curious, like what sort of product signals or like indicators did you use to like identify that people are reaching sort of like a stuck state or like they are, you know, running into something that's not self-explanatory? We actually wanted to find them earlier in their user journey before they hit that stuck state. Um, So one of the things that I instituted was something at Paperspace that we call the new user survey. So we call it internally. Um, The best way to describe it is it's part of our signup flow. It's a required part where I call it a, like a Mad Lib. I am a student engineer, executive founder. I'm interested in, you know, gaming, GPU hosting, deploying models to production, virtual desktops. My team size is just me two to five, you know, so on and so forth, right? Depending on that data, if they said, I'm a student, I'm interested in gaming, Paperspace provides cloud GPUs, you can game on them. My team's not interested, right? Low ARPA, high churn rate, you know, is just not, that's not someone we're going to reach out to. They don't sign contracts. But if you say, I am an executive, I'm interested in deploying a model to production, my team size is 20 plus, you're going to get an automated email. But that automated email, it came from me actually, actually like cued to come out of my inbox that says, hey, I'm head of customer success. I want to make sure you're having a good experience based on your new user survey. You're interested in XYZ. If you'd like a tour of the platform, if you need support, or if you just like some free credits for testing, please reply to this email or book a call with a member of our customer success team. 
And uh, I made it clear, like, this is automated email, but I do reply to them. So, you know, I would get emails that would get replies to those. I would forward them. I would reply back and then send it to my customer success team. Or each CS team member was fielding on average two meetings a day from those automated emails. So uh, it wasn't that we were looking for people getting stuck, uh, at least not yet. We can talk about that. We did get to that later on um, in our maturity. It was more that we were reaching out to our ICP early in their user journey and just saying, hey, how can we help? You know, it wasn't a sales email. It was a, you know, let me help you be successful email. The sales assist method of reaching out and being proactive and leading with value is is very powerful. Um, how do you define a PQL? And at what point did you decide that PQLs are worth reaching out to? In cloud infrastructure and infrastructure as a service, it's a little tougher than some other SaaS products where the user journey is a little more linear. For us, you're accessing a utility at the end of the day. Now, we have made that utility more attractive by having a really valuable software layer, but you're still accessing a utility. And because of that, we had 15 definitions of PQLs. And they weren't always, they were what we thought were PQLs. It does not mean someone is going to respond. It does not mean someone is not just a tire kicker. It means they've done things that trend towards them being most likely to convert, stick around, spend money, and and expand over time. So I I don't want to share our PQLs because I don't know that they'll necessarily make sense. But for us, we looked at cues that were either early in the journey, or we looked for cues that said someone was creating escape velocity from being a hobbyist or a tire kicker to a serious user. And those were as complex as a series of four or five product utilization cues combined, or they were as simple as their utilization bill increased past a certain threshold within a certain time period. Follow-up question on that from Randy. Hey, Ben, um, just two questions. So you, you built this a couple of years ago and probably a lot of the PLG platforms weren't very sophisticated. I'm just curious, did you standardize on like a commercial platform or did you, did you build your own? I guess it's part yeah. A. Part, part B would be like, what other sources of truth systems did you have to sort of bring together? Like what traditional CRM or a customer success yeah. platform? I'm just curious how that worked. Yeah. So really good, really good question. Uh, and there's a really fun kind of transition from where we were to where we are. So we first used Variance. Variance is no longer in business. Variance allowed us to create the formulas based on segment events. They were they were predominantly powered by segment events. You could pull things from your data warehouse eventually, but in the beginning it was just segment events. So we we put together a formula of segment events that became a PQL, uh, and then we sent that data to HubSpot. We were a, a HubSpot CRM. Um, we sent that to data to HubSpot. Created a whole dashboard based on what would be the equivalent for those POCUS users out there of playbooks. So we had this dashboard that had, here's one set of PQLs. Here's everyone that's hit that PQL in this time period. Here's who that contact is assigned to. And then the CSMs, we would once a week have a PQL review where once a week we would go through that dashboard together and everyone would continue to find new opportunities or new leads. What that turned into was migrating to POCUS right around the time the variance was going out of business. We migrated to POCUS and POCUS basically combined what we liked about variance with what we had in HubSpot and then, you know, gave it steroids. So it was everything we wanted, plus increased the workflow uh, and efficiencies and process of our CSM where we could build out these playbooks and then 
you actually have like a list of all your PQLs and you can, you know, organize your day based on who you've touched, who you haven't touched and what you need to do. We still use uh, HubSpot. All of these PQL data from Pocus still get sent back to HubSpot. So we can run additional reports in HubSpot, but the PQL identification and workflow is managed in Pocus today. Were there any other systems of, you know, I'll call them siloed apps where they're collecting data that you had to integrate with or standardize on? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, everything, so Pocus, the way it works is it goes to the data warehouse. So we had to start sending all of this stuff to the data warehouse. So we had stuff from Stripe, data from HubSpot gets sent to the warehouse and then pulled back into Pocus and then sent back into HubSpot. Segments, I mean, there's just our, our application, obviously. Um, there, you know, is a handful of data sources. We started doing some really interesting stuff with Zero Bounce and Clearbit um, as well. And from what we see, Randy, is oftentimes there's various like systems of record. There's the data warehouse and there's a theorem. And typically what we see our customers merge the two data sets into focus, like Ben said. Um, Sanjana, am I pronouncing that right? Hi, Alexa, that's Sanjana. Nice to meet you. Want to ask your question? Thank you. Hi, Ben. Um, so Hi. my question is, you know, with the massive information that's now available to buyers, literally on their fingertips, even before they get into any sales cycle or a sales process, it gets a little complex because they understand all of the different products, all of the different vendors way before they come and speak to us. So how do you tackle that complexity of buyer enablement during the sales or let's say pre-sales process? So I think that's the beauty of product-led growth. If, if your product is designed in a way that users can get in and get value before they're charged something, whether that be through a free trial, a freemium version, a reverse free trial, whatever that is, then you don't actually have to combat all of their supposed knowledge on how you're different than someone else. You can just direct them into, you know, usher them into the product, give them what they need to start using it, and then answer any questions from there. What I hear you describing to me is what I would battle in a traditional sales-led motion where two vendors, two SaaS platforms that don't necessarily have transparent pricing, don't have any freemium or free trial, what they're battling. And now that's when you're getting into two account executives saying, well, here's what our, our product's going to do. And I know about their product and it does X, Y, Z. But at the end of the day, your account executive is now tasked with saying, hey, you're going to get all of this value. We're going to solve all your problems as soon as you sign this contract and get to the other side. And that's just a really dangerous place to be in. That's, that's where companies get into you know, higher churn because account executive promise things that the platform doesn't really do and so on and so forth. But in a self-service freemium environment, product speaks for itself and you don't need to worry about the buyer coming with preconceived notions of what they think your product does. Question from Robin. Um, we get many demo requests from small leads. We wish they'd just sign up and try the product on their own. I do yeah. this a lot. I did 30 demo calls with a small customer. Oh, wow. And found out that they have tons of questions and didn't read the website. Any thoughts on reducing yeah. these SMB demo Oh, man. <laughs> this was an absolute huge problem at Paperspace, right? Paperspace, yeah. utilization-based billing. You can come in and spend $12 a month. You know, we have self-service users that never talk to anybody that spend $12,000 in their first month or $12,000 in their first month. And as I mentioned before, we get a lot of gamers. We get a lot of students and hobbyists, okay? Those folks have questions. We have people that will reach out through our contact sales form asking about which GPU type is best for them. They want to play League of Legends, right? We're not going to get on a call with that person. We get people who reach out and say, hey, I need three virtual desktops. 
for virtual desktop streaming. The ARPA for that user is like $35 a month. I can't invest customer success resources into that user. I can't. So the way you solve for it is you have really robust documentation. You in your sales tool like Salesloft or Outreach.io or, or HubSpot's templates, you create a really friendly template that says, hey, you've come to the right place. We do whatever they're looking for, right? Insert variable here. We do desktop streaming. You can find out more about it in our docs here and then a link to the docs. Boom. So it's just auto reply. It's just a nice way of being like, yep, go find, go read for yourself how to do it. But like you, we can't invest sales time in that. And, and you need to use a tool like an outreach or a sales loft or a HubSpot templates. Otherwise, you're only partially solving the problem because you can't be spending all day writing custom replies to each one of these demo requests. It's just still going to suck up too much time. So we had that same problem. We just have, we have a, a template called too small for sales and it addresses whatever they're, they've reached out about and then points them in the direction of our docs. How do you keep, this is very tactical, but keeping docs up to date and relevant is not like a do it once and figure it out. Uh, I have some folks on the team here from Pocus who are in charge of docs that I see smiling. Um, yeah. but how do you make sure you're capturing the feedback loop from the questions you're hearing from customers into the docs? Uh, just scream at the product team and who, you know, scream at whatever team is responsible for docs. Make sure that they've written up-to-date docs before pushing out new features. I, again, as a developer-focused organization, we're pretty good about it. We just have to be. I know one of the things you want to talk about is sales versus customer success. Our users don't like talking to people, so they would rather read docs, yep. you know, on a whole. So you have to have good docs in, you know, in the developer toolkit ecosystem. It's such a good point. It's depending on who you're selling to and your buyer, there's going to be different ways that they want to interact with you in the product. So developers are going to want to go straight to the docs and it's probably not offensive to be like, hey, here's the information. I don't really want to take yeah. time to talk to you. You're too small of a deal, <laughs> which makes sense. And I appreciate how tactical you're getting Ben. of like, no, we literally made an outreach cadence with this information. We're going to lead with value. But if you're not going to be a big monetary deal for us, then yeah. it, it's not profitable for us to then spend the time with you. Here are the docs. Go figure it out yourself. Yep. Uh, Ayush, I think you had two questions if you want to ask them both. Um, just on the last point, uh, Ben, like the minimum ARPA, like what is that to justify sales assist in like ARR? Yeah, I mean, it depends on, depends on every org. You know, for us, I basically set a, a it started at $300 a month and then moved up to $500 a month. As we further honed our motion and coordinated with the product and marketing sides of the business to make sure we were targeting the right user, the ACV of the CS-led opportunities quickly got pretty large. It jumped up to $96,000 a year. We really had to be cautious about who we invested our time in, right? And, and Alexa heard this from me, you know, my vision, you know, we, we took a, we had a, we had a very successful exit, great outcome for everybody. Um, before that exit, you know, my goal was how do we IPO this? How do we do it like Atlassian with nine salespeople, right? So that was, so the whole thing was how do we keep this thing super small and keep that team super focused, right? And as that ACV and ARPA got larger, we had to tune what the bottom end of that looked like. Uh, in order to uh, make sure we are optimizing, we have two CS team members and you know two sellers. Make sure that we are optimizing their time for working on the highest value users, while not ignoring you know the rest of the base. Amazing! I'm going greedy. 
Um, what uh, go-to-market channels then did these CS people work? Was it pure inbound or did they have to go outbound as well? No outbound. Yeah, zero outbound. So it was all sales contact form, inbound user signups. And of that, it was, I just looked at this data during DD and I don't remember, 82% uh, was our, of the CS-led revenue which made up over 64% of total revenue was um, mining inbound users. I think we're one of the most efficient businesses I have seen in a while since the Lassian days from this product-led sales motion. It's really, really impressive. Thank you. Going back to the previous question, in a product-led sales journey, did sales assets only reach out to the ones who are ahead in the journey? Or what about people stuck in the funnel? And are there different alerts based on different activation points? Yeah, cool question. So this is something we started doing recently in the promotion for this AMA. You guys probably saw Alexa and team talking about like the anti-PQL. So in the beginning, it was like everyone who became a PQL, right? Hit certain thresholds, whether it was just pure utilization, which meant pure spend, or they hit certain activities that qualified them and we reached out to them. But then we started doing these two other activities. The first was the anti-PQL. They signed up. They, you know, are in our ICP. We know that because of their either their clear bit um, data or because of their new user survey data, but they didn't take any action at all. So they're in our ICP. They know about us because they signed up, but they didn't become a PQL. Now, kind of old, you know, old school, but like traditional PLG, PLS is like, you're only going to reach out to those qualified folks. But my thesis was like, all right, we have these folks who we are, they're in our ICP and they know about us. So it's not cold, but they didn't take an action. Let's reach out to them and say, Hey, saw you signed up. You haven't done anything yet. What's going on? What can we help with? Can I give you, you know, a larger amount of free credits? We offer them a big chunk to come back out and test. That has been very successful for us. The other thing we did is this kind of like abandoned cart idea. So it's, it's not an anti-PQL. It's still, actually, I guess it's still like an anti-PQL. It's someone who doesn't become a qualified lead, but they do test the product. So they, they test it, they don't become a PQL, and then they leave. So again, even a little warmer, they did something, but we want to understand why did you leave? And we, we saw it as a great feedback loop to give to the product team. It's like, hey, here's an opportunity to reach out to folks that used us in some level didn't stick around. Why? They didn't become PQLs, but they're in our ICP. Reach out, ask them what happened, offer, offer them free credits. We would get feedback on the product we could share with the product team, as well as we would end up bringing some leads back in order to, to drive more revenue. I am stealing this concept of anti-PQL. I think it is awesome. When you have a high, when an account fits into your ICP and they should in theory be a great fit, but adoption is lower. It's, it's why either there's yeah. product feedback that needs to happen to be informed, or they just didn't read the docs like you told them to do. <laughs> and they might need that next extra nudge to get them to their activation point. Um, Anastasia, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, sure. Um, so we are building the sales department just to assist those sales assisted uh, leads that are being in a free trial. Um, and we're trying to separate it from the uh, customer success department. Um, what's your standpoint on those sales assisted leads versus product assisted leads? Uh, can both coexist? Yeah. We're, we're making a mistake and we should have stayed in the uh, customer success and just treated them as their product assisted leads. And uh, that's it. So I think one of the one of the things we ran into at paper space is we became a victim of our own success where I had one team originally, 
identifying PQLs, reaching out, doing that product walkthrough or doing that pricing negotiation. So they're, so which essentially means they are handling that conversion expansion and then they're their account manager afterwards. What happened was we were too successful. Those team members started spending 80% of their day putting out fires with existing customers and only 20% of their day identifying PQLs, reaching out to them, doing calls to walk people through the platform and converting new users, right? So I had my best sellers not selling. So then we spun up this team that was designed to identify the PQLs. First, their job was identify anti-PQLs in abandoned cart. And so to take that off of the plate of the, the seller, and then we are now spinning out like an account management team that would be like post sales, what would be traditionally called customer success. I think we're just calling them account managers as opposed to customer success. But depending on where you're at in your, your org's maturity, you can have one team manage the entire life cycle. You know, that's what Slootman did at Snowflake, um, right? It's, it's we weren't going to have this pre-sales, you know, sales and post-sales. I actually like the idea of the post-sales for now. We may then move back. But depending on where you're at in your maturity, I think you can have this sales and customer success, right? Customer success yeah. is essentially account managers. Sales is identification, you know, product walkthrough and conversion. The Snowflake example is so good of people just think, you know, we could be like Snowflake and never have customer success. I think the point is every business is a little different and you need to figure out like sales, sales, sales customer success, scale, CS, what makes yep. sense for your product and your end user. There's a question on how do you even know something's an ICP? Do you get alerted? Is it a manual process? Are you just proactively digging to find your target accounts? Yeah. Hate to promote you guys again, but that's what Pocus uh, <laughs> does, right? That's what that's what these PLG platforms do is, is they allow you to write the formula, the if-then statement. If user does X, Y, Z, then flag them as a PQL. Um, so we used the data we had to build out those, those formulas. Before we used variants, before Pocus, before we had segment installed across the whole user journey, we went as simple as to say, what were the top 100 highest spending new users last month? But the problem is that that's a lagging indicator. So that was our very like archaic, low tech way of starting to get into PLG as we had self-service. And then we said, okay, let's run a report. What are the top 100 highest spending new users last month? And then we would reach out to them. That allowed us to start getting involved in conversations with folks we could sell contracts to, but it was a lagging indicator, right? A billing cycle means they have converted, they have activated. We needed to catch people earlier in the user journey, which is where the work of drawing the user journey, inserting the segment events, and then using a PLG platform came in was, you know, from sign up to first bill, was a black box for four months until we got all of our tooling in place. During those four months, we said, give a, yeah, I said, give me the report of the top new spenders. We're going to reach out to them and say, hey, we're with the customer success team. Do you have questions? Can we help with anything? So that was kind of our journey in the PLG um, was this idea of just like really archaic lagging indicators of product qualified leads. We have five minutes left. Maybe we can rapid fire the, the two questions in the chat. So um, oh, at what point yeah. do you decide? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at what point do you decide to push the contact person to your sales CRM so you don't end up with thousands of unqualified leads? We actually push every single user into the CRM. And that's because we are a self-service product where users would come in, use us for a small project, 
not use us for six months and then come back again and use us again. We would have the number of times my CS team converted someone who's like, yeah, I used you for a project two years ago and I haven't touched my account for two years. The number of times that happened was, you know, more than I can count, right? So we push every user to the CRM because of that. So we weren't afraid. Again, we use, you know, HubSpot, we use some great user tagging and qualification to better sort through all of these users. But every single user that signs up gets pushed to the CRM. And then once an account converts, how much automated communication is in place to push a user towards expansion versus having it, I guess, be more of an account manager proactively reaching out? At Paperspace, not enough. We were an extremely lean team without a marketing leader. We did newsletter updates, but not on a regular cadence. We did uh, change logs when there were you know, product releases, but we were not doing enough with, you know, we use customer.io. We weren't doing enough there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of the things had we raised as opposed to getting acquired, we were going to bring on a marketing leader to handle, you know, a lot more of the, you know, hyper personalized, hyper segmented, automated communication via the marketing funnel. But it seems like your, your reps didn't need any more leads. You weren't, you were swimming in leads already. So <laughs> we were very fortunate. We were very fortunate. Yes. I have one more very tactical question to round us out. You talked about in the very beginning, building out a customer journey and not being kind of step one to figuring out how are users experiencing the product? Where are the different avenues they could take? Where do we need to insert humans? For someone who's at the very early stages of I need to build my customer journey, maybe it's for they're at a startup or later on and they're like, wow, I need to rethink this. How do you start to build a customer journey? What's like step one, two, yeah, three? Um, I mean, you need to be working with someone on the team. If you don't know, if you're not the founder, you're not head of product, you need to be working with that head of product as well as your head of marketing. You need to get everyone in the room and use something like a whimsical or a, uh, you know, a Miro or any of these, these um, workflow, you know, tools and map out literally every single path a user can take. You know, I look at go to market, I look at PLG, I think as really being that intersection of product sales and marketing. So you really need all of those folks in the room to map out this entire customer journey. Where do the marketing qualified leads come from? Where do the direct self-service leads come from? Where do, you know, where do where do all these users come from? What do they, where does the user come from if they're invited by another user, if you have a team functionality, you know, and what is their experience like? You need to map out every single path they can take and then understand what marketing communication is going out at each, at each spot. Where could people fall into a trap? Where are they potentially having their aha moment? And then you say, okay, if their aha moment is here, they started here, what are the things they would have had to have done to get there? And that's your formula. They did X. Y, Z. And then there are tools you can use to back into the assumptions and validate them, right? To measure how many users are taking these routes and over what time period, right? Because time matters as well when looking at the user journey. You know, if someone's doing something all within the first 15 minutes of signing up versus the same person who takes the same steps over the course of a week, the person who does them in 15 minutes might have a higher buying intent than the person who does them over a week. Thank you, Ben. This was one of the most tactical AMAs I think we've ever had of real advice that I think folks can go and just from here take like five different lessons 
to start building out of their own organizations. And um, like I said, I am just so impressed by you and Paper Spaces journey, truly one of the most efficient and effective product-led sales motions I've seen. Um, so I am so happy that you're able to share some of this insight with the community. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. Alexa, thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. And thank you everyone in the community. We'll see you soon.